Amen. Imagine, if you will, um, you're in a relationship with someone who freely and often tells you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that goes on for days, it goes on for weeks, it, it may even go on for years. And those affirmations and, and reassurances of love are all very well, but imagine that that person never actually does anything else other than tell you that they love you. They don't show it in their actions, they never buy you a gift, they never talk about you well in front of other people, uh, they never stick up for you. It's just, I love you. Would you get sick of that? Yes. Yes. Words without actions eventually run out of meaning for us, don't they? And that's really the sort of thing that that Paul is touching on as we draw to a close in our series on 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If someone said that to us, I love you, I love you, I love you, kept saying good things to us but never lived it out in other ways, we'd soon grow weary and suspicious of them and think they were only uh, saying those things so they could gain the status of being in relationship with us or that they could get something from us. And Paul has something similar to say to us about our relationship with God, inviting us to consider whether what we do matches up to what we say, particularly when we are in church on a Sunday morning. Does what I do the rest of the week measure up to what I say about God and sing to God and and do in church on a Sunday morning? God wants us to show our devotion to him in a life that is shaped around his priorities and how he wants us to be. That's expressed in all sorts of different ways in the Bible, but one of my favorite ways of looking at that is actually from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul writes this, We are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God, Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, has prepared good things for you and me to do. Not just some random things, you know, nameless good works, but prepared individually for us things that fit us to do. And as Paul closes his two letters to the Thessalonians, he invites us to show our love for God and each other in these good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. So I'm going to read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's on page 1366 of these church Bibles. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are, that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. 
On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So here's Paul signing off his two letters to the Thessalonian church, which, as we've said repeatedly throughout the last few weeks, as we consider these two letters together, is a church which he had seems to have a special affection for. He'd only been physically with them for around three weeks when he first established the church in Thessalonica. But as we saw, we, he developed a particularly personal and almost intimate relationship with them, speaking of them in earlier in the letters in kind of familial relational language of, of a, a parent, of a child, of a brother or sister. He really loves these people. And in this chapter, he is saying the last few things that he wants them to hear from him. At the beginning and the end of the chapter, chapter 3, we have kind of fairly typical Paul signing off language. Pray that the message will spread as it did with you. Pray for me. May the Lord of peace give you peace. The Lord be with you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those, those sort of things at the beginning and end of the chapter are fairly typical of the sort of things we read at the end of most, if not all, of the letters of Paul in the New Testament. But the really interesting and significant thing for us, I think, is kind of that sandwich in the middle between verses 6 and 15. The vision Paul has presented throughout these two letters is a vision of the way the early churches were that people shared and cared for each other and made sure that no one was in need. There are many ways we could think about that, but but you could reflect on the famous passage which I've mentioned a few times before from Acts chapter 2, where just after Pentecost, we see a picture of the early church providing for everyone and everyone having having what they needed. Food, money, whatever it was, they lived in community together and shared together and no one was in need. Or think about how when it became apparent, I think it's in Acts chapter 5, when uh, it becomes apparent that some of the widows in the community of the early church were not receiving what they needed for their life. And that was a, a potential cause of division within the church. And Paul and the elders of the church meet together and pray together and set aside some who are especially gifted for that and filled with the Spirit to care for those particular needs. And that's consistent with the vision of church that Paul is presenting to the Thessalonian Christians throughout these two letters. We should be communities where people express their love in presence with and for one another and in sharing together. And when we come to these verses in the middle of chapter 3, Paul is saying to us that the church community should be communities where there are no passengers. 
where everybody has a role, where everybody is invited to and is able to contribute. We initially read that when Paul is talking about those who are unwilling to work, that those who don't work don't eat. It seems very harsh, and sometimes I've heard this verse used with a very particular political agenda to say the welfare state is a bad thing, which is a terrible use of this passage. I'm very committed to the welfare state, and I think it's a very important part of how a nation should care for, it, care for itself and those who live there. What Paul is talking about here is people who will take advantage of the generosity of the church community and those who are not not able to work but who are unwilling to work. Did you notice that language he used? It's not people who can't work for whatever reason it is but those who are just not willing to do so. People who are taking advantage of the generosity of God's community. But he's also talking, it seems to me, about those who are not really engaged with the community life of the church. The church is a voluntary organisation by definition. And there are only three of us in this room who are paid to be involved with the church. Gail, Charlie and myself. None of you have to be here, do you? I mean, I didn't message any of you last night and say, you better be in church in the morning. Did I? Did Charlie do it? Did the wardens do it? That would be a great thing for the wardens to do. <laughs> Tim and Annette, how do you fancy that kind of power? <laughs> we, we have an app, my wife and I have an app on our phones which uh, uh, <laughs> enables us to track wherever the kids are. with uh, using the GPS on the kids' phones. And I did cross my mind, I was, I should, have, I should require that as a membership of St. Peter's. <laughs> and, then, and then I get a special alert whenever you sin. <laughs> but you know that's not how church works, don't you? It's a voluntary organisation. You come here because on some level you want to. And you are part of a church, not just in attendance, but in spirit, because you want to be part of a church. But one, one of the tricky things with voluntary organisations is that we find in churches and in every other organisation by and large it runs on the power of volunteers that about 80% of the volunteers about sorry 20% of volunteers do about 80% of the work that's just normal people who have researched voluntary groups over the years tell us this and, and repeatedly the same figure comes out Now, obviously, there are going to be times and seasons where some of us need to rest, take sabbaticals from whatever, take some time out. But but the church, Paul is saying, is a place where we are invited to contribute, to be involved, to show our devotion to God, not just with our words and our voices, but with our actions, showing that we are part of this community. And that's one of the advantages of being a relatively small church like we are. We can find you something to do very quickly. (laughs) Just, if you're in any doubt, just ask Gail. (laughs) Gail has just acknowledged that. Or Charlie or myself. You can get involved with Sunday school, with operating the computer projector, with music, with serving at communion, with welcoming people as a sides person with all sorts of different things that you can get 
involved in. We're not actually a busy church. We don't have lots of programs, but there are lots of ways for you to get involved. And Paul is also keen for us to live in a distinctively Christian way. He talks about believers in the second half of verse 6 who are idle. We've just been talking on that, uh, touching on that. And those who are also disruptive and do not live according to the teaching. And by that he means the teaching that Paul gave to the church about Jesus. Are our lives measuring up in terms of belief and action? Are we Christians? Do we follow Jesus? Do we take his words seriously? Are we living in a distinctively Christian way? Does our Monday to Saturday measure up to our Sunday morning? And he also touches in verse 11 on people who are disrupting the church. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. And I love this turn of phrase. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Paul is talking about the sort of person who is part of a church community but seems to be throwing a spanner in the works at every opportunity. That doesn't mean always agreeing with everything that's said and done, but is disrupting, disturbing the flow of the mission of God in the church. I never understand quite why people do that. Some people do. Churches have soft edges by necessity because we're voluntary organisations. But Paul says, don't be people and don't have anything to do with people who are there to disrupt, who are not contributing, or whose lives and whose beliefs are not in line with Jesus. He says, have nothing to do with them. Warn them. But he says in verse 15, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer, a brother or a sister in Christ. Being part of church ministries, I have been in an ordained capacity for over 18 years now. I I get increasingly depressed about the way some debates are conducted in church. And by that, I don't mean St. Peter's. I mean the kind of church as a whole. And I see people who disagree with each other about a doctrine or a practice in the church settling into camps and regarding each other as enemies. That's not how it's supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, warn them, perhaps, but do so as you would a fellow believer in tenderness and intimacy and the love that Paul has been talking about over the course of these two letters. What Paul is presenting here is that he assumes the church will be a place where the community helps each other. And they do that by serving in the context of the church and by serving in the context of the world. By finding out what the good works that I referred to at the beginning are that God has prepared for you to do in advance for those who love him. And that's one of the things that our discovery groups are about. Helping us to discover who each other is or are. Who who each other is, thank you. And to help us shape our lives according to that. How has God shaped you? And what good works has God prepared for you to do? Don't be afraid of finding that out. So often we can think of how, 
finding out how God has shaped us and the works he's inviting us to do is frightening and alarming and somehow burdensome. But that's not who we believe God is. What is the template for the good works that we're invited to? Well, we have to perhaps look elsewhere at the words of Jesus to find out. And I want to take us very briefly to three things that Jesus said. And the first is in John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about us as uh, branches on his vine who are designed to bear fruit like any plant is. And that we are connected to him, the vine. And through a rhythm of resting, abiding, as is sometimes expressed in John chapter 15. That is, uh, building up our relationship with Jesus through worship and prayer and scripture and fellowship. Abiding and bearing fruit. The rhythm of rest and work, rest and work, which is best expressed like a pendulum swinging in good order back and forth between rest and bearing fruit rest and bearing fruit rest and bearing fruit and those of you who know about gardens as I don't know will understand what rest sometimes look like because sometimes it looked like pruning things back and that's as far as my gardening knowledge goes but you know the sort of thing it is sometimes we'll need to cut things out pruned sometimes we might need to add things as we cut other things out. But it's always a rhythm of abiding, resting, and bearing fruit. And it's important to note that that is not to be a millstone around our neck. Jesus, in his one, some of his most famous words of invitation, says this. Come to me, Matthew 11, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The good works that God has for you, as we said from Ephesians chapter 2, are prepared for you. The yoke of Jesus is easy and made for you. It fits you. It is designed for you. The good works are prepared for you. They are not prepared for somebody else. The good works that Charlie is called to are not the same as the good works that I am called to. If I tried to do Charlie's job, well, for a start, you'd never hear anyone sing in tune. (laughs) Or the youth work would be a total disaster. But that's because I've been trying to do the good works that Charlie is called to. God wants you involved so much that he has designed works for you. According to your gifts, your talents, your spiritual DNA, if you like. So do not be afraid of finding out how you are shaped and made and designed by God. Because it's not going to be burdensome. And the things that God calls you to... Well, yes, they might be expressed at times in the language of taking up your cross, but it's your cross, not somebody else's. And it might be costly, but it's not going to be hard work. You might have to work hard at it sometimes, but it's not going to be hard work. I work hard at preparing a sermon. I do, I really do. But it's not hard work for me. What I mean by that, it's not burdensome, it's not onerous, it's not something I think, oh... 
because I enjoy it. It is something God has prepared for me to do. And it's the same for each of us. And if you're struggling to understand what that looks like, then I think one of the great guides in Scripture is Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. What marks people out as those who will enter the new creation and life for eternity with Jesus? Being part of a community, being people who feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, welcome strangers, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the prisoners. Maybe some of that intimidates us, but what I think we're talking about is basically being part of a community and contributing to a community that is shaped in that direction. You may not be the one who actually visits the prisoner, but are you facilitating the community through your giving, through your time, through your prayer, through your energy that does that, for example? Even more succinctly, the summary from the prophet Micah, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. Be just, be people of justice, be merciful, be people who love God. If you want to know what our invitation from Jesus looked like, these are good templates. And so, as we close this series in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I invite us to consider if our lives and our actions and our priorities and our decisions enable us to to measure up to what we say and reflect on and sing in church on a Sunday. And in some moments of silence, using the pen or the paper at the back of church, if you didn't get someone away in, or notes on your phone or whatever it is for you, I just invite you to begin a process of reflection, and it may take a bit longer than the time we have this morning. Just think about two areas of our lives. How does the time I spend each week reflect my relationship with God? And how does my use of money each week reflect my relationship with God? As you consider that, reflect on a change to make in those areas and a person to tell about the change. And the reason we do that is so that we can be helped and supported in making these changes. On, on Tuesday nights, we, a group uses the building, Narcotics Anonymous. And if you know about the 12-step program, NA or Alcoholics Anonymous or, or similar programs, you know that they work primarily because they're people who have a lot in common supporting each other wrestling with issues. And we can understand that works for people who are wrestling with addictions, but I think it's the same in the rest of our lives too. You see, if I make a decision out of something like a consideration like this morning and say, I think I need to um, give more money to the church's work, or I think I need to get involved with Sunday school, but I don't tell anyone about it, then it's quite easy for me to back out of it. But if I tell the discovery group that I'm part of, or if I tell uh, someone sitting over there in the church that I know and trust, then I've committed to it, and that person can help me live it out, or that group can help me live it out. Not in a crack-the-whip kind of way, but in a, how are you getting on? Do you need any help or support with that? Can I help you? So as we reflect on our time and our money, and how they reflect our relationship with God and what we do and say on a Sunday and how God has shaped us. 
let's consider a change that we can make and a person that we can tell. I'm going to give us a couple of minutes of silence to do that.